Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today, joining me all the way from California via Skype is Dr. Robin Rosenberg, a clinical psychologist who writes about the psychology of superheroes. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And just to be clear, I just want everyone to understand what we're talking about. You are a real practicing uh, psychologist with a degree. You're not just like, this is not fan fiction. Correct. And where did you study? Uh, University of Maryland at College Park. Okay, good enough for me. So how'd you get into writing about superheroes? Uh, Excellent question. I'm sure it's come up before. Yes. I am co-author of an introductory psychology textbook and uh, also have children and I, the short version of the story is that my children introduced me to X-Men. I used to read comics when I was a kid, but X-Men was after my time. And I was blown away by how much psychology there was in their stories. And it seemed like a wonderful opportunity to teach little nuggets of psychology using superheroes and their stories. And so uh, scientific psychology, I might add, not Freud, uh, which is uh, can be what most people think of as psychology, but scientific psychology, what we learned from the lab. And so that's how I had the idea, and then I had the opportunity to edit a book called The Psychology of Superheroes, which was great fun, and um, taking it from there. I, I use popular cultures generally. I've, I've written an essay for another book on the psychology of Harry Potter and edited a book on the psychology of the girl with the dragon tattoo. And it's the same concept, which is really good fiction writers capture something essential about human nature, and they translate what they see in a way that feels alive and and sort of psychologically true for many of us. And so, what I'm I try to do is is talk about why why it feels psychologically true, what we know from the lab about the characters. I want to get into some of these uh, specifics. Okay. I, I, what, what is it about X-Men that, or is there a character or a moment um, that rang specifically true to you and inspired this? Um, not in particular. I think the X, the store, for those of your listeners who don't know, the X-Men is a, it's a Marvel comic line. Oh, I'm sorry if I misled you and you thought this was a psychology Okay. Podcast. The people listening definitely know who the X-Men are. Okay. Um, so their, their struggle, both as gifted individuals who are marginalized, certainly rings true in, in terms of human nature and what we know about giftedness. Um, and the social implications of that, and their battle with um, the brotherhood of mutants and with humans really capture something essential in their uh, quest, their quest to be accepted. So that was what, what got me. I had been writing the chapter on social psychology for the introductory psychology textbook when I kind of was introduced to the X-Men and it just leapt off the page as uh, examples of of what what was in our textbook. So Magneto always struck me as kind of the most realistic or the most believable villains, one of the best villains, maybe even the best villain in comic books, because uh, he's not he doesn't think he's a bad guy. And, uh, you know, he has these very specific motivations. And I, I think less so than, like, Dr. Doom, who just wants to kind of destroy the world. Magneto sort of has noble intentions, doesn't he? He does, and, and I think that raises the issue that there are... I've kind of created a typology of villains, if you will. It's in a book that's coming out next year um, with Oxford University Press called Our Superheroes Ourselves. But there are definitely a category of villains who 
are only villains from our perspective. And from their perspective, they are doing the right thing and acting heroically. And Poison Ivy is another example mm-hmm. who thinks that she's basically a hero. Um, and, and that's true in our world as well, where one person's enemy, you know, someone who seems evil, uh, is from another person's perspective, you know, doing the right thing. And we see this in the political landscape now with this election year all the time. Yeah, I think there's probably more, uh, bad, more bad guys in the real world. Uh, more real world villains are probably closer to this Poison Ivy Magneto type than a Doctor Doom type. Or, or is, are they? I have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, I'm, I'm actually not a forensic psychologist, so I think it just depends on the specific population that you see. If you're talking about people in prison, are you talking about, uh, you know, sort of snakes in suits at work? Or I'm thinking of, I guess, the bad guys I see on the news. Like you would see Magneto in the news if you, you know, lived in the Marvel Universe. Okay, give me an example of who you're talking about in our world. I don't know, like the Un Dynasty and Kim Jong Un, and I disclaimer, I don't know anything okay. about them. Okay, they seem like well, they, I, I picked them because they seem almost like uh, super villains. Really, they're almost cartoonish in their villainy. That's from our perspective. Now, I'm you, you don't uh, you know it's I am loath to venture a guess about exactly what's going on in their mind, but I'd like to think that as a leader, they they believe that they're doing good for their people. I mean, if you want to think of Fidel Castro, you know, we, um, you know, in the 60s thought it was horrible. He was, you know, a bad leader or evil or villainous or whatever you'd want to say because he was communist and, you know, had sort of um, kicked out a lot of American businesses and, and um, made their the value of their business drip down the toilet. But he, as far as I know, was really thought he was helping his people. So... You know, there's an example. Who, when you started to realize that you could teach these theories through uh, comic book characters and through pop culture, who else jumped out as you as a psychologically rich character? Well, the, uh, Batman, certainly on the hero side. I mean, I, I actually think he's a poster boy for psychology in some ways. He's dark and brooding, and the reason I wrote the book is because when I speak at comic conventions, and people often will say to me, so what's the deal with Batman? <laughs> yeah, how would you diagnose uh, Batman? Well, you know, what I do in the book is go through the most likely diagnoses and talk about um, whether his symptoms meet the criteria, at least from the comics I've read, the problem with, with doing this with Batman is he has so many decades of history that I am, I'm, I'm, there are stories I haven't read and some of them may be seminal, but I, I don't know. So I can only base it on the stories that I know about. But the reason I like Batman, aside for the diagnosis issue, is its relevance to how people make meaning out of trauma. So I assume your listeners will know Batman's origin story. Doesn't everyone know Batman's origin story? You would think, but not everyone does. Right, right, right. But within a few days, he vows to avenge his parents' death by, you know, warring on all criminals. And then spends the next, you know, decade in preparing for that. So we like to think of this as fiction. But in fact, um, Bill Finger and Bob Kane were brilliant in drawing on what they observed in real life about people who experience trauma and how they make meaning of it. So there's actually a whole literature now um, called post-traumatic growth 
or stress-induced growth. And what we find is, well, first of all, let me just say that most people who experience a trauma do not develop PTSD, which I think you wouldn't know from watching films and TV and, and reading books. But most people, only, 80, only 20% of people go on to develop PTSD. Um, and there are certain uh, characteristics that make people vulnerable. So Batman or Bruce Wayne is another good example because he had many of the resilient qualities that protect people from getting PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, <clears throat> what people do, even if they have PTSD, experiencing a, a very significant trauma like witnessing the murder of your parents really calls people's beliefs about the world into question. So most of us have what's something called a belief in a just world where uh, you believe that um, people get what they deserve and also that they deserve what they get, which is a little circular, um, but we believe it often nonetheless. And so that means when bad things happen to good people, it's, you know, what does it mean? How could this happen? Uh, that means being good doesn't protect you. That means, you know, sort of doing all the right things doesn't protect you. And so you have to develop a more nuanced view of the world. Um, similarly, people, most people believe that most of the time they have a sense of agency, a sense of uh, ability to have a, a, an impact on the world in the, of a type that they'd like, at least to some extent. But when you can't protect yourself or you couldn't protect your loved ones, Again, this sense of agency of being able to be competent in the world is called into question. There are a bunch of these kinds of beliefs. So people kind of work on this and make meaning out of it. They come out the other side and try to find a silver lining in the bad things that happened. Typically, they uh, engage in some form of social activism. So they will try to help other people, either prevent what happened to them from happening to other people or help them after the fact. There are examples or fight of this crime in-, in the streets of Gotham. Or exactly. So in our world, I don't know if, if you and your listeners are familiar with Adam Walsh. He was a young child who was kidnapped and found murdered. And his father and mother, his father's David Walsh from America's Most Wanted, they founded a, a, a foundation to help other families going through something similar. And, and David Walsh has, has really single-handedly really been on a crusade to help prevent, to do what he can to help increase awareness and help prevent that kind of a thing. I think that's why he started America's Most Wanted, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't know that he particularly started, but it's the same concept. Or in Mothers Against Drunk Driving, that got started because um, there were a group of women, but it really lit on fire when another woman whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver as the daughter was walking to a church carnival, she became the powerhouse and, and behind Mothers Against Drunk Driving. So there are all these examples in our world of people who basically do what Bruce Wayne did. They just don't put themselves on the front line every night. So is Batman almost like a, a fantasy version of that where uh, he's affecting the world in a way that no one ever possibly could? And, you know, he becomes the world's greatest superhero and stops crime uh, every night. Well, it's fictional in that respect, but it's not fictional in it in its psychological underpinnings. Mm-hmm. And there are many people who do put their life on the line as the way that they've made um, from the meaning that they've made of their own traumatic experiences. So, um, you know, there are real life superheroes who, um, some of whom have experienced 
their own traumas, and they literally do put their their life on the line when they patrol. There are firefighters, police officers, um, people who you know who work for the Red Cross and go into hot spots internationally who are putting their lives on the line. Journalists who go into hot spots who put their lives on the line. Now, while we're in Gotham, what about Batman's nemesis, the Joker? Ah, before we get into this, we got to bring up you know the last psychologist that tried to get inside the Joker's head. He ended up turning her, and she ended and she became Harley Quinn. So we got to be very careful what we talk about here. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So the Joker, um, the Heath Ledger version of the Joker was absolutely petrifying because I think it felt surreal. There's a wonderful um, book um, by Robert Hare, H-A-R-E. He's the foremost researcher on psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And so he has a book on, on psychopaths. And then he has another book called Snakes in Suits, which is about basically the, you know, sort of less obvious psychopaths in the workplace, um, if any readers are interested. And the Joker, you know, the Joker has evolved from literally a clown in, in his, um, well, the original Joker wasn't so clownish and so funny. He was serious in the same way that the very original Batman was a serious character. But then he went into his kind of clown phase, and uh, certainly the buffoon <laughs> phase um, in the 1960s. And then he's, he's kind of come out again on the dark side. And he is just an uh, unbelievably sadistic, sick guy. Um, and he has many of the elements of a true psychopath. And, I, you know, again, the psychological underpinnings are really powerful. And Christopher Nolan and well, the Nolan Brothers and Jonathan Goyer, who wrote the screenplay for um, Dark Knight, did a fantastic job of capturing that. Who else? Uh, what I think, like most people are aware of, Batman has some issues and are aware of his origin. What's like a superhero whose psychological uh, motivations we might not recognize? So, um, my favorite this is another DC character, but I really like Green Arrow. What, are you, should I give a little summary? Or that's a great question because Green Arrow is a little more obscure than uh, X Men and Batman. I think we should explain who Green Arrow is okay. and where he comes from. So Green Arrow is a DC character who was uh, kind of um, Bruce Wayne, Batman copycat. He was a, except blonde. <laughs> he started out as a you know a rich guy who had a hobby of archaeology and. Um, then they gave him a sidekick, a young sidekick, Speedy, and he, you know, he had the arrow car, and he had these trick arrows. That yeah, were like very a boxing silly. glove arrow. Yeah, it was it was very silly. He's an archer. That's his. He's a human. He's a fully human superhero like Batman. And then uh, he went. He did. Uh, he underwent a reboot. And we uh, actually probably a number of them, but the the one that I'm interested in was written by Andy Dingle. And in, I think it was in the 80s. Um, I think so. Don't quote me on that. And No, that was a different version. Sorry, that was the really cool Green Arrow story with Black Canary. Sorry, I think it was called Green Arrow Year One um, mm-hmm. by Andy Dingle. The other one was by Grell. Um, year One, Green Arrow Year One. It- and in that story, they did a fantastic job. And here's why I love him. The story is he's he's... He's a wealthy young man whose parents died, and he has no job. I mean, he's filthy wealthy in a Bruce Wayne kind of way, but the comparison ends there. 
He is what we call a sensation in psychology, a sensation seeker. He loves highly stimulating activities like parasailing, jumping out of helicopters, uh, you know, skiing, jumping out of a helicopter, landing in the, you know, Mount Everest full of snow and skiing down, that kind of a thing. He's uh, a Richard Branson type. Yeah, he's a substance abuser as well, a ladies' man, ne'er do well, and basically just flits from thing to thing and has no meaning in his life. He puts other people's lives at risk. He sort of has a basically a hired friend <laughs> who goes with him and whose life he puts at risk for his own escapades. Long story short, he's on a boat. It crashes. He ends up on a desert island um, and has to survive by his wits. It's kind of like the Tom Hanks film, um, whose name escapes me at the moment. Castaway. Castaway, thank you. Sort of like Castaway, where he feels at peace with himself for the first time in his life. He ends up creating arrows, um, making a bow, shoot, you know, hunting game, fishing, communing with nature, and uh, challenges himself to do better just because he d- he's not complacent and isn't happy to rest on his survival laurels, if you will. So, and, and so let me just say that there's a literature about outward bound programs um, in psychology and the ways that they help people. So this part of the story, again, rings true psychologically about how it can make people really come to um, pe- make peace with themselves. And then it turns out he's not alone on the island. There's a drug manufacturing plant there. And he ends up being heroic, um, kind of he, just because the situation demands it of him. And he really likes how it makes him feel to be heroic. Mm-hmm. So when he goes home, he continues that and he takes on you know, the code name Green Arrow and he continues being an archer. And he doesn't have the silly boxing glove arrows. And, but, but the reason that I really like the story, um, well, because, it makes, because it's really true how here he was, it, he made meaning of his life and he found peace by helping other people. But it's also because this is a guy who probably had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, who is a you know, stimulation seeker, which can often get people into trouble. And he found a way to make it work for himself. That he, you know, he channeled it in a way that was to, adva- to his advantage and society's advantage. And it was a win-win compared to just jumping out of planes and you know, skiing and doing drugs and stuff like that. So I, I just love that story because it's really about how, to, how each of us should figure out who we are and how to make who we are work for us instead of work against us. Have you seen, um, have you seen Arrow. Arrow? Yeah. I don't, know, I, I don't know anything about it. I saw the pilot issue at San Diego Comic-Con this summer. It was a very different take, <laughs> I have to say. Um, it wasn't bad, but it, I, it wasn't. I mean, I, re- I just really loved the reboot um, in Green Arrow. That element of the story has been there for at least some time, because I remember that was in when, I believe, I hope I'm remembering this right, because someone's definitely going to remember if I'm wrong. Uh, Kevin Smith rebooted it in, like, the 2000s or maybe in the late 90s, and that was element of the story was in there there, too. So that's always been a piece of the of the, or I don't know if it's always been, but for at least some time. Um, year one, what you're talking about, I looked it up, has been is relatively recent, from 2007. Oh, is that recent? Okay, I didn't yeah. realize that. The Kevin Smith story was a continuation of the Grell story. I mean, 
he's always been um, the desert. Being alone on a desert island has always been part of his origin story. Mm-hmm. The part that um, was added in year one, which I think was so cool, was about him both being a novelty seeker, you know, and with the substance abuse and probably sort of having symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and how he really found peace with himself on the island and then turned a lark experience of heroism into a way of making meaning. So I, I, that that was much more psychologically rich than in the earlier stories. One I have to ask you about, one character I have to ask you about because I saw you speak about her, is Buffy. Because ah. frankly, we don't get a chance to talk about her enough on this show. Okay. And that's a show with a lot of growth yeah. and um, the, the characters all go through a lot. I mean, what, what do you speak about when you speak about Buffy? Well, uh, I really like Buffy. One of the things that I speak about is for Buffy is about the importance of social support. And, you know, Buffy was always with the Scoobies. Buffy, Buffy wasn't really probably more than any other superhero, except maybe the JLA, which, but de facto Mm -hmm. is a team, but Buffy is the lead hero, but it's really about her and her team. And the dilemma, I think, again, I think that no surprise, Joss Whedon did a lovely job of talking um, about the burden of responsibility. The other thing that's interesting about Buffy is unlike most superheroes, she didn't really choose that path. She was called to it and, and, and really had that's a choice. That's interesting. Kind of like Green Lantern. It is kind of like Green Lantern, except Green Lantern was doing a version of it anyway by being a fighter pilot. So he, he already chose a path that was not mm-hmm. dissimilar. Versus Buffy's a high school, you know, right, a valley right, right. <laughs> valley girl high school student who, you know, has something very different in mind for herself. And, um, and, and, you know, that happens to us. Sometimes we think we're on a path in life and crap happens and we get put on a different path that we didn't choose, but we kind of have to suck it up and deal. And so I, I think her story is a really lovely story about that process and dealing and the ups and downs of being a leader, a reluctant leader, um, and having that resp- and the burden of that responsibility. Do you think these sometimes silly things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Green Arrow comic books, do they have the potential to help? Does the story of Batman have the potential to help someone with post-traumatic stress disorder? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have been to conventions. When I, when I go, I sometimes walk the floor, the exhibit hall floor, which is crazy, and talk to people, um, sometimes people in costume, not out of costume, and a surprising number of people talk about how Batman's story has given them um, hope, um, support, be, you know, when they go through really hard times. I mean, and other heroes, too. Other people have talked about that. Of just it, it, you know, people talk about Catwoman or Wonder Woman and feeling empowered um, by the model that that both of those women present. I, I absolutely do. I mean, I think all fiction, any any kind of fiction or real characters. I mean, we re- if we relate to some aspect of a character or a person or aspire to be like them, then they give us meaning. And you know, superheroes are just a particular subgenre of fictional heroes. And, you know, and in life, we also have people we admire and look up to and, and want to emulate. Do these ideas uh, meet any resistance in the scientific community because, you know, comic books are 
considered somewhat frivolous by some people? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm using them as a vehicle to teach about science. Mm -hmm. So I, I haven't gotten any, any pushback about that because it's, it's really is about teaching, um, little nuggets of just, you know, here's, here's why something is, you might find it a compelling story because it's true from what we know in the lab. Or to use another example with a girl with a dragon tattoo, here's an example where I disabuse people. I, I don't know if you or your listeners read the book or saw any of the films, um, but she's supposedly has a photographic memory, so she can just look at data and make, make sense of it and, and, and remember it. And in fact, there there's really isn't such a thing as photographic memory. Wait, there so isn't? No. No. Not not. Not the kind that was talked about in in these stories. I definitely thought photographic memory was real. Someone had it on Fringe too, so I just assumed. No, it's it's a fictional superpower. Well, it's very clear when you, when I hear you talk about it that it is about the science, and it's a, it's a really you know I usually when I talk or when I read about comic books, it's from like an artistic perspective, and it's interesting to hear like. Um, the art and the writing is backed up by the science too, and there's a reason that, like you know, Batman resonates uh, with all of us. Exactly. Exa- I mean, there are a lot of stories that you know get buried and no one ever remembers because I think they don't ring true. Mm-hmm. And and there are a lot of you know there have been some not great superhero films that flopped because you know they didn't really capture the psychological underpinning that you know may have had you know decent special effects but that's not enough we're talking about green lantern right uh, your words not mine <laughs> you know this show can be about anything i want and yet somehow i keep coming back to how much i hate the green lantern movie how can people read about what we've been discussing uh i have a blog on psychology today uh it's a superhero blog um and also just i have a, a larger blog called um psychoblog at blogspot.com. You can go to my website, uh, drrobinrosenberg.com. That's D-R-R-O-B-I-N-R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. And you can see the things that I've written. Um, you know, email me, shoot me some questions. I, you know, I'm open to topics. If there's something you'd love for me to discuss, if I can turn it into a blog post if I, you know, there's enough science there. So feel, feel free, check out, check out my website. You know, the only other person who's made that offer the way you just made it um, is someone who was on the show. He studied Batman, and he did his PhD on Batman, and it was more from, like, a cultural angle. Like, we talked about how Batman changes to reflect the era, which I think kind of dovetails nicely with what you were saying about Batman. But he had the same thing where he was like, email me. Let's talk about this. So who was that, out of curiosity? Uh, Dr. Will Brooker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's actually written an essay for a book that I'm editing, so he's he's cool. really good. Um, and the other the other thing is people should feel if they like Batman, uh, feel free to pick up um, the book. What's the matter with Batman? Uh, it's you can get it on Amazon or you know any other online booksellers. So cool. Can I say one more word about that? Please. So I in the first chapter I say that you know I'm going to tell you my take on whether Batman has these disorders, but if you know about stories that you so that make you disagree with me email me those stories. And so if I change my diagnoses, then I will write a second edition and, and thank the people who send those in. Um, 
in the acknowledgement section to the second edition. That's very scientific of you. You're like, someone challenged my theories. Yeah, I mean, it's about data. For, for psychologists, you, when you make an evaluation of someone, it's all, you can only make it on the, with the data that you have at hand, what you see, what they tell you, what other sources have told you. So I'm making my you know, assessment based on the stories that I know. But I recognize that there may be things that I, I'm sure there are things that I don't know. And if there's enough, Send me the data. <laughs> but surely you can't weigh it all equally. Like, obviously, there, there's been so much Batman stuff. Surely there's some issues that contradict things, just like over, just by sh- the sheer volume of Batman material produced over the past 75. So there is, there is a huge amount, but I think for the, the, the issue is, are there stories that I've missed where it really talks about, so did he have insomnia for more than two weeks, or did he have you know, psychological symptoms, this, that, and the other thing. And that, I think, this most of the stories touch less on that. Well, I have some reading to do. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing the show. This was great. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a pleasure. DrRobinRosenberg.com. Go to her website, send her theories, ask her questions. She's going to love it. A few weeks ago on the Facebook page, I had a poll, and I said, hey, who do you guys want to hear on a future episode of uh, this podcast? And one of the top-rated answers was someone from Power Rangers. So I am very excited, because next week, on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, from Power Rangers, we're going to be talking to Bulk and Skull. That's right, Bulk and Skull. Paul Schreier and Jason Narvi, they were on Power Rangers longer than anyone else. Don't believe me, here is a clip from that episode. It was very slapsticky what you guys did for the show, uh, and you were talking about how when you first auditioned or when you guys first met, that you were just coming up with stuff. Was that how it worked on the show, or was that uh, tightly scripted? No, 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 no. It was loosely scripted, and we were kind of the uh, cheese whiz that held the sandwich together. You know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, what kind of sandwich is that? It was a big turd sandwich, is what it cheese, was. Cheese, cheese turd, <laughs> cheesy turdy. Cheesy you know, turd. I mean, it varied. It, it kind of ran the gamut, Jeff. It, 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 like there were some bits that by their very nature and the skill of the writers and there are some of our writers were really really great yeah and but and, like when you work for Saban it's a it's a trial by fire like there is a certain there is a Saban way when you're working on the show like Haim wanted to see a certain type of coverage from the directors he wanted a certain type of actor playing the roles and he was very set and very cool with us and so he wanted us in there but um, the the writers, because of the schedule, you know, because of the deadline-driven nature of television, sometimes we just got the shaft, man. You know what I mean? It's like like we we would get wacky, you know, Easter Bunny costumes, but they were covered in they were like pin laden because the costume department didn't have enough time to actually yeah. make a bunny costume for a fat guy, which is unrentable because it doesn't exist. <laughs> you know? Well, in some ways, we suffered from our own success. I mean, I think the that you know sometimes the writers would be like, oh, I'll do this, and you know they will make it funny. That that's what they will do. That is their job. That's um, that, I mean, that's where we ended up, right, Narv? I mean, yeah. but you know, there was there was guys like Sperling, and I mean, a, a few of the writers like really had the the had the the zeitgeist of it, and 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 they were and they were really able to put us into scenes and give us. And here we go, right back to acting one hundred and one, Narv. Yep, yep. Give us the objectives, Doctor Narvi. Right, I mean, because Jeff, without an objective, 
the idiots are just morons. Yeah. But but if you give them and this you know, look at the Stooges, look at the Three Stooges. You know what I mean? It's like w- every uh, episode is them with the oh we got to get a job. You know what I mean? It's like whatever, like they were lucky that they never had an episode where there was no objective. Unfortunately, yeah. that was not always the case with us. Occasionally we would show up anomalously and just be like, bah, 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 bah. well, and that's uh, the thing. Sometimes, I mean, think about the whole thing about the power. I think the second season in some ways was the most flattering and exciting. Cause we're like, Oh, we have a super objective. Well, we had a super objective, but a super objective going back to freaking Stanislavski, you can't play just a super objective. You need smaller objectives in a scene that gives you enough that you could attempt something to achieve that objective and either succeed or fail. With Vulcan Skull, you always fail. So if they give you something too big, you you literally are falling in space, like Polly said. But if they give you something small, Polly and I could be at our best. And that's where the great uh, uh, directors and writers came in, is they would find small little things. So, once again, Bulk and Skull from the Power Rangers on Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show on Tuesday. I will remind you about it if you follow me on Facebook. And, you know, maybe sometimes you get to uh, answer some fun poll questions, too. Uh, I'm on Tumblr, Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin, Tom. I, I said it too fast, but you know where it is. Uh, go to the mailing list at jeffrubinjeffrubin.com. You can sign up for a mailing list. What? Who does that? Uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, at Jeff Rubin Show, and YouTube.com slash Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin. Thank you so much for listening, and bye!